Well, good morning. My name is Drew Stedman. For those who don't know me, and I have the privilege of serving with the Antioch Movement. And so Antioch Austin is part of a church family. We've got about 50 churches here in the United States and a couple hundred long-term missionaries around the world. And I get the incredible privilege of being part of the team that supports all of them. And I got to say, I just love getting to be a part of Antioch Austin. I've um, served as an external advisor here at the church since its formation. And it's just always a joy for me to be gathered with you. And as you may know, Pastor J.D. is on sabbatical. He'll be back in, I think, about six weeks or so. And so you get me for the next three weeks. I'm excited to... Thank you. Thank you. I've got my fan club. Um, Pay you guys after the service. But excited to get to join in with you. It's a a fun time of year, you know, as the fall semester at school kicks off and get to pray over everyone and welcome people back from being scattered all over the summer. But I do have a bone to pick that we refer to this, this time as the fall semester. Because have you gone outside lately? Like, there is nothing fall-ish about what I've experienced outside. And uh, I know a lot of people, maybe you're, you're new to the great state of Texas. And um, August is a little interesting of an experience. I'm actually not originally from Texas. I've been here 22 years. And I realized that Texas has a different set of seasons from the rest of the United States. Did you know this? Oh, yeah. So we, have, we do have a fall in the state of Texas. It starts sometime in October and goes till December 31st. We have a spring that starts on January 1st and goes till May. Then we have summer. And summer, some years starts in April, some years starts in May. If we get lucky, summer starts in June. But then our fourth season is what we're in now. Normally starts mid-July. I call it the surface of the sun. Because that is what it feels like outside. So there is a glorious day coming sometime in September where it will get below 90 degrees. But until that day, we wait. So welcome to Texas in the summertime. But no, seriously, it's fun to get to be with you guys now that I've properly discouraged you. I did want to start off this morning with an encouraging story. You know, God is doing awesome things as part of our church family. And I heard last week, uh, you know, as, as Chris Padgett shared, it sounds like a great message as you walk through Acts 13, 14, and just shared testimonies of the way that God's moving in the nations of the earth. Um, I thought this morning maybe we'd start off with another one, if you're up with that. Um, we have this thing as part of um, Antioch called Engage the Nations. Anyone ever done it before? Oh, great, we got some alum in here. It's a summer-long internship where you get to go overseas. Highly encourage it if you have the flexibility to do that. Um, just so cool to see what God's doing in other places. Well, we just had our, our crew who went out, about 100 people, um, just got back, I think about a week ago, and they had their debrief. They're sharing testimonies. And I heard this one that just blew me away. There's this gal, you know, maybe in her 30s, from Antioch and Norman, I believe it is. And so she is at the orientation prior to being sent out, And what we do is we gather everyone this year, it was in Glen Rose, Texas, and we're having this time of prayer, this time of ministry, and it's kind of our last night. And I I was there. God was just moving and ministering to people in a really profound way. And apparently after I left at like nine, they kept going for a couple hours. So just one of those prayer times. And so anyway, there's this gal, she's getting ministered to, and God's just meeting with her. You know, it just sounded like it was this really dramatic time of prayer. So she's being prayed for. This group's gathered around her. They have their hands laid on her. They're praying over her. And she said as she was receiving prayer, she heard this person praying behind her, and she could tell by the voice and the accent that it was an African woman, maybe in her 60s, that was praying over her. And, you know, she's being ministered to, but then it registers in her mind, I never saw anyone in the room that fit that description. So she's like really weirded out, you know? And she's about to turn around, and as she's about to turn around and look, she felt convicted by the Lord, don't look, you're not going to see anybody. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, that, that probably just left there is in the realm of mysterious things that God does in our life, but it gets crazier. 
So her summer internship was in the Middle East in this very multinational city. And she shows up a month later after having this kind of dramatic experience, or it was, I think this happened a month later. She's at a house church meeting with some believers there from all over the world, and in walks this woman, and when this woman starts talking, it's an African woman in her 60s that she has the exact same voice that she heard getting prayed over. They compare notes. She was not in the United States during the orientation. But what they did find out is while our team was having the orientation, this team in the Middle East was having an early morning time of prayer. And at that exact same time, they were praying. And I don't know how this works, but somehow God made the voice transfer. I mean, it just blew me away. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's, that's worth an applause. <laughs> I share that to just encourage us that God's moving, but also maybe it should put a little more fuel in our prayer, huh? You know, you, you pray. How many times have you showed up at a prayer meeting and like, oh, what's happening? But man, God, God answers. He hears. He is active in our prayer. And I think there's something even particular about this testimony for our passage this morning. We're going to be reading out of Acts chapter 15, um, verse 1 through 11 in particular. And we're reading about how the church is a church for all people, united in the spirit of God. And I love this testimony because I think it's this supernatural and vivid illustration the church, you know, you have these African women living in the Middle East, you have this person in America, you have, you know, all these different nations represented, but the Spirit of God is pulling us all together in ways that transcend human wisdom. And God's even doing it in our day as we read about what he did in Scripture. Amen? All right, so God is doing good things, and this morning we're going to be reading um, this passage in Acts. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me. Acts chapter 15, just have it handy. We'll have it up on the screen, but always fun to look at it in, on your phone or in an actual Bible. And this, this passage this morning, if you were to study the book of Acts, and I'll share a bit more about this after we get started, this passage in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 15, I would make the argument is the decisive passage in the book of Acts. So if you were to study the book of Acts, this is, you know, if you can make the claim about scripture, this is the most important passage in the book of Acts, or at least indicative of the most important theme in the book of Acts. So it's a really big deal. And, you know, in, in the Bible, there are actually 66 individual books, Acts being one of them, but the Bible tells a cohesive story as a whole. So each book has a main point, but the Bible as a whole has a main point. And what we're going to read about today is also central to the entire plot of Scripture, of how God is redeeming people to himself from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation, and we can become the unified people of God. Is that cool? So hopefully that gives you some motivation to read with me. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. We'll pause there. All right, so what's happening here? There is a very significant question 
that the early church is facing, and that is this. Do these new Gentile, which just means non-Jewish, do these Gentile believers have to become Jewish in order to be Christians? That's what's facing them right here. And, you know, the, the ramifications are profound. Like many of us, most of us maybe in this room, wouldn't be here depending on how they answer this question. So it's a very big deal what's going on in this passage. And it, it's central to even why the book of Acts was written. I always love when, you know, just a little Bible study note, whenever I study the Bible and I'm reading a book, I always like to ask the question, why was this book written? Like, what's the main point? What, you know, Luke is the author of Acts, like, what is he trying to communicate in this book? And I think it's actually a very profound message for us, you know, as best I can tell, the book of Acts is trying to explain to Jewish Christians, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the people of God? And he's telling it in story form, in narrative form, but it's actually making a really important theological point. Who are we? And if you could just pause and think about it from, you know, just picture yourself being a part of this early church. Acts chapter 1 starts with a very small group of Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem, and the leaders of this group are the direct disciples of Jesus who just rose from the dead. That's where the book begins. They speak, uh, you know, uh, probably Aramaic language, like that's who the church is. By the end of Acts, a couple, you know, on a chronological timeline, a couple decades later, now the church is scattered across the world. Most of the believers are starting to speak Greek and Latin. They don't even speak the same language anymore. The church is predominantly becoming Gentile, and most of the main leaders had no direct ties to Jesus's earthly ministry. Now, if you're sitting there and that was your church, you're probably asking the question, what happened? And is all this change a good thing? You know, I'll speak to anyone who's walked with Jesus for a long time. I think that's a question that we all wrestle with, don't we? You know, in our own personal lives, we look at how God's led us and we're like, man, a lot has changed. Is it good? Is it not good? How do I even make sense of it? If you've been part of church long enough, you ask that question. Churches change. Is all the change good? Is it not good? Like, who are we and where are we going? I think that's a fundamental question we all ask. And so what, what is Luke doing He's trying to write to this church. He's trying to write to these believers, and he's saying, guys, I know there's a lot of change. I know a lot has happened. I know it's hitting on core issues of identity, but let me tell you that the Holy Spirit is leading the church, and this is what he's doing if we have eyes to see it. Maybe a message for us as well. And if you study the structure of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10 tells the story of the very first Gentile Christians, God using Peter, and that's going to come into play here in a moment. And then Acts chapter 11 repeats the story that happens in Acts chapter 10. And Acts chapter 15 goes right back into that same issue that happened in Acts chapter 11. And so a lot of time and attention is spent in the book of Acts of directly answering this question. What does it mean to be the United Church of God? Where do Gentiles fit into this story? So I just say all that because I, I want to perk our ears up that I, I think this is an important thing for us to understand the story of Scripture. But here's the problem. You ready for it? Most of you did not walk into church this morning saying, are Gentiles allowed to be part of the church? <laughs> right? Like that was not front and center. You walked into church this morning and getting your kids out the door got you into an argument with your spouse that you still haven't resolved. And that's what's front and center in your mind this morning. You're welcome to just kind of grab their hand as an act of an apology if you need to. You know, you walked in this morning and you're starting off your, your fall semester at school in the next couple of weeks and you got all kinds of things in front of you, all kinds of newness. I know some of you are moving away. Some of you are coming back after being home for the summer. Like, that's a lot of stuff that takes up our minds and our emotions. 
You walked in this morning, maybe on a more serious note, and there's some big hurdle in front of you. Maybe you've got a financial need that feels like this mountain that you just can't overcome. Maybe you've got a, something going on relationally or medically. You know, all of us, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have something that we brought in this morning that's probably not what we're reading about in this passage. I, I mean, you know, I'm guessing you did not have a debate at Life Group this last week on whether Life Group members have to be circumcised to join your Life Group. <laughs> if you did, then you probably need to have a conversation with the pastoral staff before you go further. Like this... How do we take something that's so central to the plot of Scripture and make it relevant in our lives today? And I think that's our task this morning, is to say we don't want to, on the one hand, just disregard it because we don't see the immediate relevance. But what I find, when I study the Scripture and I really unpack it and kind of set aside, okay, how does it apply to me right now? If I can set that question aside just for the next 30 minutes and just dive into what God's saying, normally by the end of it I find it's incredibly relevant to what's going on in my life. And sometimes what I find is maybe I've been asking some of the wrong questions or paying attention to the wrong things. And by immersing myself in the story of the word of God, it recenters me in what I need to know. Does that sound good? So let's dive into this text this morning and, and just, you know, I believe that God wants to minister whatever you brought in. We're going to have a time of ministry at the end. Don't leave without us letting, you know, just having a chance to pray over you. Um, it does not minimize what we brought in, but at the same time, let's just set that aside for a few minutes and dive into what the Word of God would tell to us, because I think we're going to find it really does speak to the issues of our day. Okay, so what's the central issue? Why is this such a big deal, having Jew and Gentile be unified? If you read the story, what, what's happening here? There's, you know, we, we heard last week about how Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They're going to the nations. We're hearing about God is moving, and just like he moves in our day and age. We're seeing miracles, signs, and wonders. The early church was seeing it. The church is starting to grow. And now we have a problem. And the problem is that lots of people are coming to the Lord and we don't know what to do with them. I, I find this is a really interesting, it, it legitimately can cause problems in churches. We become victims of our own prayer. Um, God sends us all the people and now he's saying, learn how to be united together. And we're like, oh no, we don't know how to do this. And so they're telling the testimonies and, you know, they're rejoicing. There's a lot of good stuff, but it's starting to bring up very fundamental questions of identity. And in our passage today, it were these believers from the party of the Pharisees, after hearing the testimonies, they say, okay, awesome, God's moving. Now, we just want to make sure that all of these new Gentile believers know that they're on the hook to follow the full law of Moses. And here's what we can do. Um, if you have read a lot of the Bible you can associate the word Pharisee with bad guys. They're like the villains of the New Testament. But that's actually not who we're talking about in this story. Did you notice these are believers who are of the party of the Pharisees? These are the people who've repented. These are the people who recognize our forefathers crucified Jesus. We now repent. We come under Jesus, and we seek to follow him with all things. These are fellow believers bringing a really good question to the table. They're not just being mean. Because the stuff that they are representing cuts right to the very heart of the identity of what it means to be the people of God. So I'll just, you know, rewind a little bit in scripture. If you go into the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, it tells the story of out of all of the scattered rebellious nations of the world, all of humanity who's distant from God, God chooses one man, Abram, and God sets him apart and through Abram, God is going to establish a people, a nation of people. And the job of this nation, the people of Israel, is they are called to live differently. 
And you'll hear words in scripture like set apart, distinct, different, purified. They are not meant to live according to the ways of the idolatrous nations around them. They are meant to be God's own people, a display for God's glory, and ultimately God himself is going to live in their midst and set up his holy throne in his temple. And that's their job. And you can kind of picture, it's like, what God's doing is he's saying, you, my people, are meant to be like a lighthouse in the midst of the darkness. The power of who you are is tied to the fact that you do not live according to the ways of the world around you. You are distinct, different, set apart. That's what you're meant to be. Now, that point is so important for understanding the Old Testament because we can read all the laws, the laws of Moses, you know, whatever it is, 600-something laws, and we can view that as like just this list of do's and don'ts and this legalistic way of living But I'd argue that's not at all what's happening in the Old Testament. I think the law given to Moses is an incredible act of grace. Because what is God doing? He's teaching his people how to live his ways. And it's not just a list of do's and don'ts that you can never measure up. The fancy term for this is these are identity markers. These are reminders. Every time I don't eat pork, I'm reminded that I am not like the world. Every time I wash myself, it's a reminder to me that I'm meant to live a purified life unto the Lord. Every time I follow the rituals, the calendar, all these different things that God gave them to do, he gave them to be a reminder, like bound around their heart, everywhere they went, that they are set apart unto God so that you cannot possibly forget your identity of who you are. You are mine and you are different. That's the message that God gave to Israel. And in the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, in in our passage today, you know, most of the translations in Greek are... Um, to keep the law or to obey the law of Moses, the Hebrew word that would have been used is you guard the law of Moses. And and I love the forcefulness of this term. It's like this is going to, people are going to come along, culture, society is going to try to pull this out of your hands, but you have to grab on to this identity and not let go, even if it costs you your life. And it's important to realize when we read the story of the Old Testament that for the most part, the people of God were weak. They were surrounded by a very powerful empire that oppressed them, and there was a constant tension, a constant pull to get them to compromise and lose their identity. In fact, by the time of this story, for about 600 straight years, Israel had some type of foreign government that was over them, and it ranged from very overt persecution to just very subtle, but for about 600 straight years, there was a battle going on for their identity. And the Pharisees, these were the group of people that that refused to compromise. They held on. They guarded the law of Moses. The point of me telling you all this is they weren't just trying to be mean. Why did they say this? Because this was everything to them. This was their identity. They could not fathom being the people of God apart from keeping the law of God. This is a really big deal. And the more I study this passage and the cultural dynamics going on, I'm like, how on earth do you possibly find a way forward with this kind of issue confronting the church? How how do you walk in unity? How do you truly be a united church for all people where you actually walk in unity together when you have this kind of issue of identity confronting you? Half the church, this is central to their identity is following the law of Moses. But if they're going to do that, it automatically excludes the other half of the church. Like, How on earth do we chart a way forward in unity with an issue like this? You know what it does for me? Is it convicts me about how often we divide from one another over really stupid stuff. 
Like, if they couldn't find a way forward, you know, if they found a way through this, I, like, get into arguments about, you know, the style of music. I actually had this experience. This is not a joke. True story. I was touring a church building. One of our Antioch churches was renting a facility from a, a declining conversation, um, congregation, and they invited me to tour the, the, the building. So I walk into the sanctuary, and the person giving me the tour tells me that this church had actually once been a very vibrant church in this particular city. But back in the 80s and 90s, they had a series of disputes. One of them, they had a legitimate church split. Are you ready for this? Over the color of the carpet. I always thought that was an urban legend that that kind of stuff happened. But this church actually split over the color of the carpet. Like the early church is wrestling with matters of fundamental thousand-year-old identity, and we're splitting with each other over the color of our carpet. Like, where have we gone wrong? Now, in fairness, the carpet was terrible. <laughs> like, it was bright red, it burned my eyes, like maybe it was worth splitting, I don't know, but I kid. But it's just amazing to me. It's amazing to me that God designed the church to wrestle with matters of identity, deep issues, and walk in unity, and yet we live in a culture where we think it's okay to split from one another over the color of the carpet, the time of the service, the style of the worship. Like, we have really missed, I think, the fullness of what it means to be the people of God. And I would argue this is a profoundly prophetic and important message for us. You know, I've had the, the privilege of, um, this is part of my responsibilities, I get to network with friends from across the body of Christ, you know, all kinds of different traditions. I've talked with people that, you know, ranging from Catholic to Anglican, other types of uh, Pentecostal or Charismatic, Methodist, Baptist. And what I have heard across the body of Christ this past year is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to his church, unity. And if you track with us at the Antioch, this is our key prophetic passage, unity. And this is the example of the early church in Acts 15, unity. And we live in a world of division. And there's something here in the witness of the early church that we have to recapture. So what do we do? I, I want to walk through this passage, and we're going to look at two things. How do we walk in this kind of unity? First, I want to analyze how Peter, the apostle Peter, stands up and addresses this conversation and this is really looking more at like what are the keys, uh, maybe more on a, on a theological level, that enable us to walk in unity. Then what we're going to do is we're going to turn the corner and we're going to say, how did the early church walk through something like this? And that's where we're going to get a lot more practical. How do we walk in unity even in the midst of hard things? Sound good? So let's start with the what. We're going to go verse by verse through this. Verse 7 says this. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Peter's word choice here is really important. What does he say? He said, brothers, God made a choice among you. What was the identity of Israel? They are God's chosen people. So what does this mean? It means God chose Abraham. And if you read, actually go read Genesis 12 through 20, there was nothing particularly righteous about Abraham when God chose him. It was purely the grace of God. He just chose this guy. And Abraham's act was to respond in faith, but he didn't earn God's choice. So fast forward, what's Peter saying? That same God that chose our forefather and set us apart chose the Gentiles. And it was his choice again. We didn't deserve it when we were chosen. They don't deserve it. Now that they are chosen, it originates in the act of God. 
Now, this theme is going to be developed a lot more by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, if you want to unpack that. But he's tying this idea of God's choice is why we got here. And you're going to actually see this throughout what Peter says. Another way of saying it is, if you don't like it, take it up with God, not me, because he's the one who chose this. But there's actually something really profound about that, because what he's also saying is God's in charge of the church and I'm not. And if you actually keep going, what does Peter say? It's a little hard to track with the sentence, but what he's saying is God made a choice that through my mouth, the message would go to the Gentiles. And so I actually think this is really helpful for me. God is the one who chooses, but he uses me as part of his purpose. And getting that order right is everything. You know, let's say, for example, God's given you something to do. God has asked you to maybe share the gospel or your testimony with a coworker. God is the one who is going to bring about salvation in that person's life. God is the one who will deliver them from the problems facing them. God is the one who will heal them with their sickness. God is the one who's going to unite us as the people of God. This is all God's choice, and God uses you as part of his purposes. And when you get that order right, it's so freeing. What's your job? To do what Peter did. You open your mouth. You're not responsible for the outcome. You're not responsible to save somebody. You're not responsible to unite the church. You're responsible to partner with God, to obey him, to do your little part and let God do the rest because he's in control. And when I get that order right, it's so free for me to partner with what God is doing. But if you're like me, I'm tempted to think that it's my choice and everything depends on it. I'm the one who has to decide. I'm the one who has to resolve the conflict. I'm the one who has to bring about salvation and save the world. And that's a burden that none of us can bear. What most of us try to do is we either try to do everything or we try to do nothing rather than letting God be God and do his part and then we partner with him in our part. And if you get that right, you're free to participate in what he's doing all around the world. And even in this equation, I love that the Gentiles, those receiving the message, they also have a job to do. They've got to believe, which coincidentally is the same job that Abraham had to do, to believe. And in this, God is still respecting their freedom. So God's initiating with them, God's pursuing them, God's sending Peter to open his mouth to them, and despite all of that, though, they have to respond in faith and say, we believe and we'll follow you. And I gotta wonder, there's probably even people in this room, maybe you're here today and you've never made that decision. Maybe you're here today and you don't know how you got here. And you're here and there's just something about this morning, you just know, man, God's pursuing me. God's stirring my heart. There's something more for me. And God's teeing up everything, but God will not force you to believe. That's your response to him. And I'd love just to ask you for the remainder of this time, even while I'm sharing, just ask the question, are you ready to make that decision to pursue him? At the end of our service, we'd love to talk to you about what does it mean for you to take that same step of faith. All right, so God's in charge. He's making the choice. He's using us. Now let's keep going and where Peter goes with the next verse. Verse eight, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Okay, so this is God's choice, but Peter's just going to drill it in even deeper. If you go to the original language, it's, it's actually one word, the heart-knowing God. It's used twice in Scripture, here, and it's also used in Acts 1 when they're casting lots to see who's going to replace the disciples. What's the point? The point is that God sees in a way that I can't see. I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know who's authentic and who's not, but God knows it's his choice, and he's choosing them just like he chose us. And then and he's saying, God, God bore witness to them. God testified to them. You could say it like this, God validated them. What, what's the converse of that? If you're arguing, thinking that the Gentiles don't belong, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with the God who sees them, knows them, and validated and gave witness to them. 
Good luck, you know? That's essentially what Peter's saying here. And do you remember what I said about Jewish identity? Kind of the high point was this is where God chose to dwell in his holy temple, in the physical temple in Jerusalem. And what does Peter say? How does God give a sign that he validated them just like he validated us? God came to dwell with them by his Holy Spirit in the same way that he did with us. In the old covenant, God lived with his people in a physical location. In the new covenant, God lives in his people by the Holy Spirit. Each one of us have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. When we gather together as church, we become a temple unto the Lord. And if God's presence is with you and with me, who am I to say that you don't belong? Because we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter's saying here. The unity that we have is because that God chose them, he validated them, and now he dwells together in all of us. Verse 9, and he makes no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. This word distinction is really important. It's that whole idea of being set apart. So what's Peter saying? That God does not have a distinction between another believer and me. You could be a Gentile, you could be from wherever, you could be any walk of life, but if you are somebody who's put your faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, there is no distinction between us anymore. There is no need for us to be set apart from each other anymore. We are now able to be one body. And that's still relevant to us, but that was earth-shattering to the first generation of believers. Why Why did the Jewish people have to be distinct? Because the Gentile were impure. They were distant from God. So much of the Old Testament law was about Israel purifying themselves to be in the presence of God. So what does Peter say? He says that God purified their hearts by faith so that there is no more distinction, so that his presence can dwell with them, so that we can be united as the singular people of God. That's his message. Now, I think what's interesting here is Peter does not say that there's no more distinction at all. There remains a distinction where the people of God are called to be set apart from the world around us. But the distinction is no longer based on our ethnicity. The distinction is based on those of us who put our trust in Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit, transforming us from the inside out. It's a different kind of distinction. In fact, I think we're entering into an age where it's all the more important that the church lives set apart from the surrounding world. I think we are called to be uh, just a beacon of difference in the world around us where so many people are hungry and hurting and asking hard questions. The church is called to be different, but our difference is not in our, you know, ethnic or other things that divide us. Our difference is that we are people who've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever experienced this before? Just the unity that comes, worshiping with people who are totally unlike you? Guys, there is a unity that happens in the Spirit of God that is unlike anything else I've ever seen. One of my favorite places to go is the country of India, And I have close friends that are like brothers to me that pastor a network of churches there. And I just love worshiping with them. And, you know, we're we're close. We've known each other a very long time. But there's been times they've invited me to go worship in these very rural areas, mostly people who don't speak any English. There's like five languages in that area, and I don't speak any of them. So there's nothing on a surface level, other side of the world, different culture, different background, you know, Rural, urban, like every division you could possibly think of separates me from my fellow brother and sister in this moment. But I can't tell you how many times the presence of God falls on the room. 
and together in one voice. We're just exalting the name of Jesus like we did this morning. The Spirit of God is stirring our midst, and I look across the aisle. I lock eyes with a brother or sister, and there is a unity that takes place that transcends anything that I could do in my own strength because it's a unity that happens in the Holy Spirit. And this is what I think Peter's getting at here. He's not saying that the law is bad. He's saying that what we have in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit is infinitely better. We have something so much better. So why on earth would we let petty things divide us? Just to round out what he says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. All right, so that's the what. What is it that enables us to walk in unity? But the last few minutes, I want to turn the corner and say, how do we do it? How do we follow the example of the early church in the face of such intense difficulties when we can't even stay united over the color of the carpet? How do we turn the corner and walk in that kind of unity that they did? You ready for it? I'm going to give it to you in a sentence. We have to completely submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Very easy to say, very hard to live. What do I see in their example? These were people that were willing to do anything. These were people who laid down everything. These were people who took every aspect of their identity and they put it on the altar. These were people who died to their ambition. These were people for whom was true of them that their life was Christ's. They were crucified with Christ and resurrected into his life. They were submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Let me say it another way. I think our divisions come in because we argue over our personal preferences, over our desires, over our perspectives. In fact, a lot of times we even argue over good things. I've been a part of a lot of different tricky situations in churches. Often what I run into is good-hearted people who legitimately want the good, but they've latched onto their perspective and they're just unwilling to let go. And I'm not saying that the issues that we face are easy. You know, I've given some really petty examples, but there's legit stuff we've got to wrestle through. A lot of questions. I have no idea what the answer is. We have not been this way before. I don't know what it means to be the church kind of post-COVID in a post-Christian society with all this stuff. I, I don't know. But I do know if I'm not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there's no way for me to figure it out. And I believe this is central to what we have to do as the people of God in this hour to embrace this call to unity. So let me, let me break it down. I'm going to give you kind of three points to this, just because that's what preachers are supposed to do. Um, three points to this of how do we walk in this kind of unity. First is it's a continual heart submission to Jesus. Now there is a false unity lurking out there, and I'm going to call it lowest common denominator unity. And that's where none of us have to sacrifice anything and we find that the minimum thing that we can agree on, and we call it unity because we agree on that minimum thing. Maybe in our workplace, that's okay. Like, seriously, that might be the best we can go for. But that's not okay for the people of God. That's not okay for the people of God to avoid the cross. That the false unity happens when we aren't willing to surrender. We're not willing to surrender to Jesus. I find for me, this is a continual choice that I have to make. I actually think it was Ron Parrish who said, you know, I put myself on the altar, but I have a habit of crawling off of it. And that's what it is. It's like, I have to wake up every day. God, my life is yours. It's not my own. And God, I, I just, I surrender again today. Another way of saying this is, God, I may be wrong on the things I feel strongly about. Like, God, you're in control and I'm not. 
that right there is earth, earth-shattering, world-changing if we'll live it out. I talked earlier about, you know, maybe you're having a conflict in your marriage. You walked in the door today. Just think, if both people start there, I've got a lot of hope for the breakthrough you're going to get. That could be conflict with a friend, conflict in life group, conflict at the church. Just that one act gets us pretty far. But secondly, we got to go further. We have to be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I love in this story is, you know, even Peter's words, and if you keep reading James' words, they're all about, God, what are you doing? We're coming under what you're doing. But then what I also love is the example they set. We're going to carve out time to actually ask God what he's saying. Paul and Barnabas didn't just do their thing, and, you know, Peter and James did their thing, and they try to figure it out. They're like, no, we have a problem. We're going to come together, and we're going to actually seek the leadership of the Holy Spirit together. Are you stuck in conflict right now? If you are, have you had a time of just significant prayer? Have you fasted? Are you, are you really seeking God? Are you journaling every day? God, what do you want to show me? Not about them and their sin, but about me and my sin. Are you taking that time to discern the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Are you stuck in conflict as a, as, you know, as a spouse? Have you guys done that? Is your life group, are you stuck at knowing what to do? Have you just said, okay, time out. We're circling around the same issue. Let's take a time of prayer and ask God what he has for us. You know, I, I think the last few years, most of us can testify have been really challenging in a lot of ways, very dynamic, lots of change, kind of hard to wrap our heads around it. But what I can also testify about the last few years is it's been the most intense season of prophetic activity I've ever been a part of. God is speaking in the midst of chaos if we'll have eyes to hear what he's saying. Oftentimes in pastoral counseling, somebody's just wrestling about what to do, they'll come to me, and you know, I always try to listen and empathize, but then my question is, Hey, I, I hear you saying you got all kinds of confusion, but in the midst of that, what do you know that God is speaking to you? Nine times out of ten, right out the gate, they have at least one thing. Well, I know God's speaking this. My answer is always the same. Why don't you start there? Because maybe what God's doing is he's not giving you the whole picture. He's giving you the first step, and you've got to be faithful to that to unlock the whole picture. God is speaking to us if we'll pause long enough to listen to what he's saying. But our problem is we still think that we're the answer to our problem. We still think that the world needs more of us, that it's our wisdom, our intellect, our good ideas, our strength that's going to bring the breakthrough, not our submission and our pausing and our listening where God leads us into the breakthrough. Is he in charge or are we in charge? Is another way of saying this. Unity only happens when we let the Holy Spirit lead the church. Last point that I see in this passage, and this is the hardest one, is the early church was open and discerning for how God spoke through other people. This is where it gets real, right? If it's like, okay, I got to surrender more and pray more. Got it. I have to believe that God's going to give Chris Paget part of the answer and he's not going to tell me. You know, harder, right? It's harder to say that God is not going to give me the whole perspective on this and I am necessarily dependent upon you for me to know God's will and leadership in my life. I don't like that but I don't make the rules around here. This is how God led. Did you see this story? It was, it was uh, Paul and Barnabas. They're the ones seeing all the breakthrough. Then they show up at the church, and Peter, you know, he's the one that Jesus appointed as the leader of the first church. So Peter gets up and talks, but then James, I don't even know how this happened, but sometime he got appointed the leader of the church. Now he's talking, and then you got the party of the Pharisees. They're doing their deal. Like all these different groups of people, all of them had to pause long enough to, to recognize that God might be speaking through them, not just through what I think is right. And unity will only happen 
when we fight the battle in our own soul, but then when we approach one another in humility and say that God may be speaking to me through you, and that's where I find the breakthrough. Are you stuck in conflict today? Do the first steps I said, surrender your heart, take some time to seek the will of the Holy Spirit, but then this is where it gets tough. Have the humility to go to somebody else and say, I can't see straight, can you help me? Guys, I, I don't know the answers to all the stuff that we brought in, and I, I know that in this room there are insurmountable conflicts facing us, just like there were facing the early church. I don't know how to weave our way through it, but what I do know is the Holy Spirit continues to lead his church if we'll follow the example of submit our hearts, be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and walk in humility with one another. I have great confidence that in this hour, God's going to unite us and teach us how he's called us to live. Amen? But just end with this thought. Right now, if you were to just zoom way out, we live in one of the most exciting hours of church history. Did you know that? I know it's tempting, you hear messages of doom and gloom, but that's actually not reality if you're going to just zoom far out enough. We live in the most incredible revival hour that's ever happened on the face of the earth. I mean, seriously, just for one small sampling, in the year, two, in the year 1900, there were 8 million Christians in Africa. Today, there's about 700 million Christians in Africa. By the year 2050, it's going to be 1.2 billion Christians in the continent of Africa. It is the epicenter of global Christianity today. But not to be outdone, what's happening in Latin America, there's incredible revival movements that are going all across the continent. Some of the great mission-sending churches are now happening in Latin America, all across Asia, different places. Korea is one of the best mission-sending countries there is. There's revival movements taking place in India. The house church in China is one of the most vibrant churches in the world in the face of persecution. The church in Iran is the fastest growing in the world right now. Not what you would think by hearing the news. Today, for the first time in history, there's multiple movements taking place across the Arab Muslim world of people coming to Christ. There's even revival movements in Europe that are happening, and it's largely led by African believers coming and stoking the fires again. God is moving in the nations of the earth. Isn't it amazing? That's worth clapping over. And I love the way that he's moving is he's not just moving through one people, but he's lighting on this church here, this group here, this nation here, that group there, and he's moving, his power is moving, and I, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to get so focused on what I think needs to happen that I miss the move of God in the hour that we're in. I want to unite with my brothers and sisters around the world. I, I want to I have eyes to see what God is doing, to get caught up in his story and not get stuck in my own. Amen? And that takes with this act of submission of us just saying, God, you're God, and we're not. Let's stand. This morning in response, I'd love to invite our prayer team down to the front. If you're part of the ministry team, come on down real quick. There's a couple different groups I want to pray for. Um, first, if you're out here and you don't know Jesus, you've never made a decision to follow him, and you're hearing me talk about these really crazy people that live surrendered to God, but like I said earlier, it's, it's God that draws us. And if God's drawing you today, I want to invite you to do your part and respond to him. So for everybody else, if you can just pray with me for a moment, pray for those in the room who don't know Christ. And if you just know today's my day to respond to Jesus, I just want to invite you. Can you pray for a moment with me? And you're just coming to Jesus. This is not about my words. This is about your heart response to him. Just say something like this. Lord Jesus, just repeat it wherever you are. Lord Jesus, I confess that I need you. I proclaim you as king of my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead and conquered death. I repent for my sin and doing things my own way. 
And I declare today that my life is yours. If you just prayed that, come on down. We want to pray over you as part of your life in God of learning what it means to be submitted to him. Second group, you know, I said earlier, we all walk in with things. And I think ministry time is important because it's our chance just to, whatever you brought today, we don't want you to leave without having somebody pray over you. So sickness, financial worry, relational worry, let us have the chance to pray and just believe that God has a way forward for you. But then lastly, as we, we end with this last little bit of worship, for the rest of us, I'd just like to encourage you in your, in your heart right now, where, where do you need to surrender again? What's going on? Is there something where it's, I'm not saying it's, you know, you're probably gonna have to do the same thing tomorrow, but where do you need to surrender again? And, and sometimes the great prayer is, God, I want to will to surrender this thing. I don't even will to surrender this thing yet, but I want to will to surrender this thing. Like whatever small step you can take, we're stepping towards Jesus in this act of surrender. So Lord, I pray that you just seal this up, God. You'd help us as your people. I'm weak, we're weak. We don't know how to do this, but God, help our hearts turn to you. And we do surrender and we yield ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.